But at this time, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all of your blessings. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for Lola and the time you allowed her to stand on this earth with her loved ones and those in the body of Christ. Lord, we do thank you that she is rejoicing, rejoicing in heaven. May you comfort, give peace to her family. May you use this situation for your glory. Lord, I pray for every servant on this campus that you'll empower him or her, that you'll use them for your glory, Father. We pray for every heart that is here, that all of our hearts will be open and receptive to your word and to your work. Through your Holy Spirit, Father, may you equip us tonight. May we leave this place better than when we came in. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right. See if I can fix this mic really quick. All right. There you go. All right. Romans 2. If you have it there, that will be great. We're going to start at verse 1. And as you can see on the screen, the title of the message or lesson tonight is God is good. Very simple title. God is good. And we say God is good often. And we use sayings like God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. But my question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that when things go wrong or when we see or experience evil in this world, when things don't go our way, do we really believe that God is good and he is good all the time? When tonight's lesson, we're going to spend time learning about the goodness of God. And we're going to find examples of expressions of his goodness. And so we turn our attention to verse 1 in Romans chapter 2. And those of you who were here for the previous study, it was definitely a heavy study. Hard pill to swallow, but it's the truth, it's the word of God. And in verse 1, you'll see that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul turns his attention to Another group, which I'll share with you in a bit. But it says, therefore, you are inexcusable, old man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice, you perform repeatedly or habitually the same things. And so... We see in verse 1 that now it is addressed to the self-righteous moralist. Now this is the person who says, I have good morals. Those people in chapter 1 committing all of those blatant and obvious sins. The people that God gave over to a debased mind. Those people are evil and And they deserve judgment, the self-righteous moralist would say. I haven't killed anybody. 
I haven't stolen anything. I haven't physically committed adultery. And so I'm good. But those people that we saw in Romans chapter one towards the end, those blatant, obvious sinners. Wow, they you are right. They are so deserving of God's judgment. And so now these self-righteous moralists are going to be addressed. And you're going to see the folly of their judgment of the obvious or the blatant sinner, the blatant pagan. And the Apostle Paul is anticipating this judgmental attitude. He's anticipating it. So he may not be talking to anyone per se, somebody who's literally before him from whom he's heard specific judgment from them, but he's anticipating this type of judgment from the self-righteous moralists, like the Pharisees, if you remember the different situations in the Gospels. But the self-righteous moralist judgment is wrong for one main reason that we see in this text in verse 1 and Romans 2. And that is because they judge in a hypocritical way. Because it says in verse 1, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. You show that you yourself are guilty. And let me turn your attention to Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, and, and we'll see Jesus speaking. In Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. And that's the favorite scripture that the world likes to use. Never even cracked open the Bible, but it's their favorite verse. And they take it out of context, by the way, and I'll, and I'll show you how. But, they, but Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck or the splinter or maybe even sawdust in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank, this long, heavy piece of wood, this two by four in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. A comical scene about a serious topic. And Jesus in verse 5 says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so these self-righteous moralists who are being addressed in Romans 2, they're actually practicing the same sins that the blatant sinner, the obvious sinner is practicing but it's in a different package. No, they may not be committing physical fornication or adultery. But Jesus showed people that, hey, the, the law is not just about what you do outwardly, but it's about the heart. And so, no, these self-righteous moralists, they may not be doing any blatant sin on the outside. And they may be judging the blatant, obvious pagan sinner from chapter 1 for their adultery, their physical, literal adultery. But Jesus pointed to something in Matthew 5, 28. He says, 
But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the self-righteous moralist in judging that that blatant sinner for physical adultery, they don't realize that they're doing the same thing when they lust after another woman in their hearts. And, and Jesus pointed to that. And so the scriptures tell us that the law is spiritual. It's not just about outward things. Oh, I didn't do this outward sin, so I must be okay. And Jesus addressed that. He talked about the, the Pharisees who were like whitewashed tombs on the outside. That tomb was whitewashed. It looked clean. It was visible. But on the inside of that tomb, it was dead man's bones. And, and so is every self-righteous moralist. The one who tries to earn his way or her way to heaven through religion or by way of keeping a set of rules. On the outside, they may look good, but on the inside is death. And Jesus taught that. And so, yes, they are condemning these blatant sinners, but hey, they're actually condemning themselves as well. And so the first thing that's wrong about their judgment is they judge in a hypocritical way. The second way is that they judge with an attitude of pride, looking down on everyone else. Well, I'm better than them, but what's going on here is that they are comparing themselves to other men instead of God's standards. Well, you can compare yourself to other people as long as you want to. Oh, I'm, I'm doing better than them. I'm not uh, doing as bad as they are. Oh, they... They, they stole thousands of dollars. Oh, but what about you? How about in your heart there is covetousness? Covetousness, of course, would lead to stealing. That is the heart of the matter when it comes to stealing. But they don't think about that. And so they compare themselves to other men. They set themselves up as the standard where they're really supposed to be using God's standard. And so they judge with, with an attitude of pride. And then, of course, they judge to condemn. This is a third way they judge in the wrong way. And judging to condemn is to give the final sentence of punishment or to have that final say on a person's life. They put themselves in the place of God. And so we looked at some of the wrong ways to judge. But there is a right way because Jesus is not totally telling us to, hey, stay away from judgment. Don't judge at all. And there is a right way. We are to judge or use discernment to identify. So we are not to judge to condemn. To give the final sentence of a person's life. As Pastor Jim said, we're not to be salvation investigators, but we are to judge or use discernment to identify, identify what? Right from wrong, truth from error, right teachings from false teachings. We are to judge in order to identify. As a matter of fact, in the same chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus says not to cast your pearl before swine. 
Well, you have to use some type of judgment or discernment to know when that's taking place. And what Jesus is talking about there is, hey, don't continue to share the gospel with or to share the the precious things of God with somebody who is hostile towards God. You're wasting your time with them. They just want to argue. And so you have to use some type of discernment or judgment to know when you're casting your pearls before swine. And also in that same chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus talked about identifying a false prophet. He said, as a matter of fact, you'll know them by their fruit. So if we're not to judge at all, then how are we going to identify a false prophet? And so we don't judge to condemn. That's the wrong way. But we do judge to identify. And also Jesus said in John 7, verse 24, he says to judge right with righteous judgment. To judge with righteous judgment, not judge according to appearance, not according to what it looks like, but what it actually is. In other words, Jesus is saying, make sure that you have all of the facts. Make sure you observe all of the fruit. That way your judgment, your discernment, your decision will be accurate. That is the way Jesus wants us to judge, but not in in a way to condemn, not with, with a proud heart. Not looking down on anyone else. Not with harshness. Not a rash judgment. Not with a bad attitude. That's not the way we are to judge. Not hypocritically. We're doing the same sins, maybe even more, but we're blasting somebody else out for their sin. Now, he didn't say don't help them. He just says, you take care of yours first. You remove the plank from your eye and then you help them with the speck in their eye. So that's the difference between the proper judgment or discernment and the wrong type of judgment that that Jesus is saying, hey, that's that's not what we should be doing. But the self-righteous moralist is doing that here. And the Apostle Paul is anticipating that in in Romans chapter 2. Now, in judging the blatant, obvious sinners, the self-righteous moralists who are doing the same sins, of course, they show that they actually know better. They actually condemn themselves. And the reason that is, is because if you can point out that sin in somebody else, that means that you know better. And you shouldn't be doing that same thing. So, yes, you may not be doing that sin in the exact same way they're doing But hey, you're doing the same thing, maybe in a different package. Maybe it's the sin of your heart. Maybe they're doing it in the open. And maybe you're doing it in private in your bedroom. And so in judging, they condemn themselves because they show that they know better. And so that's what it's talking about in in verse 1 there of Romans Chapter two. And so this brings up a question for us all, because as we study scripture, we're we're to have some type of self evaluation. And so the question is, have we been critical in our judgment on others when they sin and then overlook our own sins? Have we done that? And if we're doing that, of course, we can repent and correct the issue. But it's time that we evaluate our own hearts 
But we know in verse 2 that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Practice meaning that it's habitual. It is their lifestyle. And so as we go through this study, what we're going to do is pick up on certain facts about God's judgment. So we're going to observe some things. And the first thing I observe about the judgment of God, and this, of course, is in opposition to man's judgment, which is not always good. But the first fact is that God's judgment is without hypocrisy. It is without hypocrisy. It says he judges according to truth. Number two, second observation about the judgment of God is that it's based on all of the facts. He he knows all of the details, all of the details, and, and he's always accurate. In verse three, it says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same? So self-righteous moralists, you who judge the, the pagan, the blatant sinner in Romans chapter one. And you're doing the same thing, by the way. Do you think self-righteous man or woman that you will escape the judgment of God? Yeah, we know that. The blatant sinner, the one who willingly rejects the light they receive in creation, that there is proof of God. We, yeah, we know God, you know, just handed them over, turned them over, gave them over to a debased mind, a corrupt mind. Hey, that's what you want to do. You keep rejecting me. I'll turn you over. So they're doing what they want to do, all kinds of sin. We, we know judgment is coming upon them, but self-righteous moralists, guess what? person who's trying to be religious and earn his or her way into heaven or into God's graces, guess what? Do you think that you'll escape the judgment of God? And so this points to a third observation I made about the judgment of God. And that third observation is that no one will escape God's judgment. No one will escape his judgment. And that's the third observation. Verses four through six, it says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance or restraint? Do you despise his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness, with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous Judgment of God, who will render, who will give to each one according to his deeds. And so in those verses, we see a fourth fact, a fourth observation of God's judgment. And that is each person's works will be examined by God. And the works will determine the degree of punishment in hell. Not the length. Hell is for eternity. Because as as long as God lives, which is for eternity, that's how long sin has to stay apart from him. So so the hell they get, the unbeliever who dies without Christ, the hell they get is for eternity. But the degree of punishment is based upon their works. 
And so that's why you see in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, you see that the book of life was open. And of course, the unbeliever is not in the book of life. And that's what it shows. But then notice that other books were open. And those books contain the works. And the works determine the degree of punishment in hell for the unbeliever. And so notice what it says in those verses I just read in verses 4 through 6. Notice what it says. It says, but in, in, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart in verse 5, you are treasuring up. You're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation. You're building up punishment as you continue to reject God. So the question for all of us who are in this place is, are you storing up wrath or rewards? Are you storing up wrath, punishment, or rewards? person, of course, who's an unbeliever is storing up wrath. The more and more they reject God, they stiff arm God. But the believer has an opportunity to to gain rewards. Now, this is after salvation. Works do not count before salvation, but after salvation. If the works are done with the pure motive and in the way that God is pleased with, if we are faithful, then we can start treasuring up rewards. And so that's why I pose that question to you. To all of us, actually. So are we storing up rewards as believers? In verse seven, it says, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory. And this and this is uh, just expounding on verse six, where it says God will render to each person according to his deeds, to his works. And so he'll give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory. That is the glorious condition of blessedness in heaven. And also those who seek for honor, that is honor from God and immortality, never die. But to those in verse 8 who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what's in store from them for them? Indignation or anger and wrath. Tribulation, that is affliction or suffering and anguish, which is distress on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor and peace to everyone who habitually is it's their way of life works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. As we look in verse Seven, as we turn our attention back there and park there just for a few seconds. That statement is valid because I know we, we talk about we're saved by grace through faith. And it's true. It's the word of God. But what it's talking about here, where it says eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. It's not talking about a works based salvation. In other words, people working to earn salvation. What it's talking about is that if a person is truly saved, if a person truly has faith in God, in the God of the Bible, they have a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, 
then what's going to follow after is works, or works that will match up with that person's faith. What you're going to see are works that matches up with that person's new nature. That's what you're going to see. So that's what it's referring to in verse 7. So it's not a works-based thing, but yes, works are important. Good works are important, but after salvation. Because even in Ephesians 2, yes, even after those scriptures that tell us that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It it tells us in Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are his workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. We are created for good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we are created for good works. So notice, again, that comes after salvation. And so this doing good is a demonstration of their salvation. In 1 John 2, verse 29, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, it says, If you know that he, that is God, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So that supports what I just shared with you. That that righteous lifestyle, the, the lifestyle of good works, the habitual good works, is a demonstration that, that we've been born again. And so is that our rule of life? Is that your rule of life? When people examine our lives and they examine our fruit, are they seeing that the rule of our life, that our lifestyle, is a revelation of a changed heart, of being born again? Is, is our lifestyle Christ-like? It's not saying that believers won't sin, but that is not the rule of our life. It's an exception. Sin for the believer is an exception, not the rule. And then in verse 8, these people who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, those who are receiving indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish, that lifestyle that they're living, of course, is a demonstration or proof of their lack of faith. They are not a born-again believer, born from above. Born of the Spirit. And so if, if we're going to live in eternity with God, then we have to be born again. We have to be born twice so that we'll only die once. That is physically. And back in Revelation 20, so I know I made an earlier reference there, but even in Revelation 20, when it talks about the lake of fire, that's the second death. That's for people who were not born twice. So if you haven't been born twice, if you haven't been born again, as, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, then I encourage you to do that tonight. And so because the people in verse 8 and, and verse 9 are not believers, they are objects of God's indignation and punishment. In Psalm seven eleven, Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, it says that God is a just judge. He's a just judge judge and listen to this and God is angry with the wicked every day that's what it says you can read it yourself God is angry with the wicked every day I thought he was a God of love he is but he's a holy God 
And so he's angry at the, at the wicked all the time, but he still loves the wicked all the time. Because God is love, God is holy, God is righteous, but here's the key. Picture an umbrella. Picture an umbrella that is unmovable. Outside of the umbrella is rain. That's, that's God's anger with the wicked. Under the umbrella, you'll experience his love. And so did the umbrella move? No, the umbrella's not moving. It's, it's immovable in this example. So the, the, the question is, where are you positioned? Are you under that umbrella where you are experiencing the grace and love of God? Or are you positioned by your own will in a place outside of the umbrella? And so that, that's what it is with, with, with God. He, he's angry with the wicked every day. And yet he's loved. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's good. But the question is, where is your position as it relates to God? The umbrella in this example. That's the question. Now, notice something else here, because we we saw something in Romans chapter one about the gospel, how it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek or for the Gentile. Notice that now again in this lesson we saw or we see that the Jew also comes first. When it comes to judgment. And I like what one pastor shared. He says that this judgment comes to the Jew first. If they are first in line for the gospel and first in line for reward, then they are also first in line for judgment. Why? Because they ought to know better. They receive the oracle. They receive the, the word of God, the law. They receive the, the prophecy. So they should know better. It came first to them. They were supposed to be the witnesses to the Gentiles. And so they get first dibs when it came to the gospel being shared with them. They get first dibs when it comes to rewards. That's if they're in Christ. And then guess what? They get first dibs when it comes to judgment. Because, again, they ought to know better. But also, there's something else that we could observe here, because as we're going through this lesson, we're also pointing out observations that we make about God's judgment. And so if you're keeping track, we are on number five. The fifth observation about God's judgment. And that could be found in verse 11, and that is God's judgment is Without partiality, there's no favoritism in his judgment. Whether you're the blatant sinning plague, uh, pagan in, in, in Romans chapter 1, or you're the self-righteous moralist, if you sin, you reject God, then judgment is coming to you. If you repent, and guess what? You'll, you'll receive the blessings of God, eternal life with God the Father, and also experience rewards. In verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law, that is the written law of Moses that God gave to him, will also perish without or 
without that regard to the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And so I see observation number six when it comes to the judgment of God. And that is people will be judged according to whatever light or knowledge they received. In Romans chapter one, we see that the, the, the people, those pagans, everybody really received basic light or knowledge of the existence of God through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? It shows you that there is a creator. We all receive that basic light. Some receive the light and say, hey, I want to know who this God is. And I believe God will reveal more light to them, more knowledge or revelation of himself to them. If they respond positively to that light. And so through creation is one way God reveals himself that he exists. But here in verse 12, notice that there are some who never heard of or or read the law of Moses as the Jews have. And so those who perish, not ever reading or hearing about the law, they're going to perish without regard to the law. And those who sin with the law, having read the law and heard the law, then they're going to be judged by the law. They're going to be judged according to what they know, to what they've been exposed to. And as we read verses 13 through 15, we're going to read information that's in parentheses. And so it interrupts the thought between verses 12 and 16. And so in verses 13 through 15, it's, it's actually going to explain verse 12 in more detail. It's going to talk about, it's going to talk more about the knowledge the, the Gentiles and the Jews have, which they will be judged according to. And so picking up at verse 13, the first statement in parentheses, it says, For not the hearers of the law are, are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. That is, of course, if a person could keep them without failing. Because James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, or whoever wants to use the law to be justified or be declared righteous in the sight of God, and yet stumble in one point, it says he's guilty of all. Guilty of all of them. So if a person could perfectly obey the law, then they could be justified by the law. That is, from the time they're born all the way till they die. But of course, we know no one can do that. No one has done that except for Jesus, the only perfect man, fully God, fully man. Verse 14, it says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So they instinctively do the things of the law, although they never heard of or read the law. They were obedient to what they knew. That's what it means where it says they are a law to themselves. They, according to what they knew, they were obedient to that. And they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, they show that the essential requirements of the law is written in their hearts. Or whatever the law was designed to do, which was to show the difference between right and wrong, that work of the law was written in their hearts. And there's evidence of that. In, the, in that Gentile who never read or heard of the law. There's evidence of that. That the work of the law. 
is written in their hearts. And that evidence is their conscience. And their conscience is that inner sense or regulator of right and wrong. And their conscience also bearing witness. And between themselves, their thoughts accuse them or tell them they did wrong or else excuse them or defending them. And so we see that the Jews here have the law of Moses. But how did they respond to the law? Did they respond in a positive way to it? Did that allow them to get closer to God? No, they haven't. They didn't respond the right way to the law. They still sin. Knowing the law, they still sin. So they'll be judged according to the law. And then the Gentiles having never read it or some of them haven't never read it or heard it. They are not excused. They still sin. In what way? Because they violate their conscience. They maybe never have read the written law, but God has given to every human being a conscience, a basic sense of right and wrong, which is proof that the work of the law is written in their hearts. And so they too are guilty before a holy God. And so when people don't obey what they know is right, whether it's through the law, reading the law or their conscience, then it is sin. Either way, they violate, they, they violate something. The law or conscience, whatever revelation they receive, they violate it. So it's sin. And therefore, there's no excuse for them to get out of judgment, out of judgment from a holy God. And ultimately, if we get down to it, there's no one who has perfectly obeyed the law. There's no one who has perfectly obeyed or not violated our conscience and that's why we need grace that's why we need god's unearned unmerited favor something we can't buy something we can't earn that's why we needed jesus to die in our place because this is a debt that we can never pay off on our own we can never pay it off on our own And so people, if they would respond to that light they receive, whether through creation or the written law or their conscience, if they would respond in the positive way to it, not violate it, then, as I mentioned earlier, I do believe God would give them more light. God is not going to hide himself from somebody who's truly seeking him. In Jeremiah 29, 13, in context, he's talking to Israel. But we can apply this to us because he says, and and you will seek me, and guess what? And find me. God is not going to hide himself from someone who is truly responding in a positive way, seeking God. Seeking him through whatever light he reveals to them. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And in verse 16, as I mentioned, uh, this is actually a continuation of verse 12, 13 through 15 again, parentheses. So just so you can see the connection between 12 and 16, I'll I'll read 12 again. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Skips to 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by or through Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so here I see observation 7 when it comes to the judgment of God. And that is that secrets will be brought to light at when, when, pe- when they are judged by God. 
Secrets will be brought to light. There are no secrets in the sight of God. We also see another observation about judgment. And that is Jesus will be the judge. The first time he came as a humble lamb, gone to the slaughter. The next time he comes back, he's going to come as a conquering king. And he's going to come as judge. So Jesus will be the judge as we find here in, in, in verse 16. Matter of fact, in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, this is what Jesus says. He says, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, capital S, that's Jesus. He committed all judgment to Jesus so that all shall honor the son, Jesus, just as they honor the father. Jesus could say that because in his essence, in his being, he is just as much God as the father and as the Holy Spirit. So he can say that. And we see here that judgment is committed to him. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Jesus is going to judge. And so there's eight facts or observation there. As we studied this lesson that we see about God's judgment. And we can see that it's very different from the judgment of any man. And specifically the self-righteous moralist that we're talking about that's being addressed in the lesson tonight. And even in judgment, by the way, just to get back to the title of the message. Even in judgment, God is good. It means that he is of a favorable character. Or he has the tendency to be kind or act in kindness. Even in judgment, he is good. And this is how God is. And we know that because the word of God, the Bible tells us. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it tells us that blessed or happy is the man or woman, anybody who trusts in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We know God is good because that's how he revealed himself to be. And if he reveals himself to be a certain way, then we, we, we need to take heed. We need to receive that. And since he does not change, then we can infer, we can come to the conclusion that, conclusion that this is always the way he is. The scriptures tell us that God does not change. He changes not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is an unchanging God. And if he was good in Psalm chapter 34, then he is still good today, and he will forever be good. But some may disagree with that conclusion that God is good, even though God tells us. And today, by the way, we know is September 11th. And on September 11th in 2001, many of us know the story that terrorists from the Islamic group Al-Qaeda, they hijacked four airplanes and and they flew them into into the twin towers of the World Trade Center in, in New York City. We know the story that a third airplane hit the Pentagon and a fourth airplane crashed in the field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And according to one article I read, it says about 3,000 people were killed in these attacks, including firefighters, paramedics, and police officers, and many others were injured. And so 
We need to remember those who are still suffering the effects of that. We need to still be praying for our country. And not just because it's because it's September 11th, but because there's hurting people, not just from this situation here, but they're just hurting people in the world from various situations. And I remember I, it was my first year of teaching when this happened. And I remember waking up, looking at the TV. It almost seemed like a dream. And so in my first year of teaching, first month of teaching, I had to experience a lockdown, high alert at school. And many of you may remember where you were, what you were doing when September 11 happened. But the reason I bring up September 11th is, yes, because today is September 11th, but also because when people see situations like that, when they see tragedies like that, they wonder, hey, is this God of yours really good? I know what you have said time and time again. I know what you believe, Christian. I know what you have told me, Christian. I know the verse that you have read in the Bible, Christian. But I don't receive that because I see this tragedy. I see this evil in the world. And so is God still good when tragedies like this happen? Yes, he is good. And many of you have answered that in your minds when I pose that question to you. But how can we hold on to this thought that God is good even after an event like today? And number one, we can we can hold on to this thought because we can rely on the word. We can rely on what God revealed about himself. And number two, we can still believe that God is good even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of something that we don't understand. It's because of, of the proof of his goodness. And so that brings a question to mind. That I'll seek to answer for you tonight. And maybe you know this because I know I have some Bible scholars in here. And so what are some expressions of God's goodness? Number one, as we saw in verse four, one expression of the goodness of God is his forbearance, his self-restraint. Although we are we are candidates for judgment, the self-righteous moralist is a candidate for judgment. And he could have wiped them out that quick after one sin. He didn't because of his forbearance. That's an expression of the goodness of God. Another expression of the goodness of God is also found in verse four, and that's because of his long suffering. He patiently endures with our mess. He is patient. We also see that he even warns man of judgment. We even saw that in, in the lesson from last week in Romans one. He warns man of judgment. Another expression of the goodness of God. And God is not good because he does good things. He does good things because he's good. These are just expressions of his goodness. We see his goodness in the fact that he would give revelation of himself to mankind, whether it's through uh, creation or the law or the conscience. We see expressions of his goodness in the fact that he doesn't show any favoritism to anyone. We see God's goodness through the fact that he rewards the good and punishes the evil no matter who it is. And of course, that's an example of of him not showing favoritism. We serve a good God. This same God expresses his goodness in the fact that he convicts us of sin, gets our attention 
to get us pointed in the right direction. He doesn't want to see us lost, so he'll convict us. Hey, that's sin. He'll point us to Jesus. He'll even let some of us hit rock bottom. So that we can finally look up. He allows some of us to continue to live. Although we've done so many crazy things in life. He even put together a gospel message by which if a person will receive, they would be saved. And unfortunately, even with all this goodness. Some people like the self-righteous moralists, they take the goodness of God for granted. They treat it as something worthless. And it shouldn't be that way. And so if you're if you haven't put your faith in Christ tonight, again, I encourage you to do that. And we can pray with you after the service. Is at least one of us will be down here on the floor level. You can come and we'll pray with you. But some people look down upon they, they take his goodness for granted, treat it like something worthless. But God, the scriptures tell us it's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's so good to us, shown again through, for example, his long suffering. And people show a lack of appreciation for his goodness through the evil way that they live. Although he's given them chance after chance, he's given them breath after breath, morning after morning, they continue to practice evil and are self-seeking and do not obey the truth as it tells us in Romans 2 verse 8. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, as the worship team comes up tonight, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So they think that they're okay. They can keep on in this sin. God hasn't done anything to me yet. Not knowing that the long suffering of God is there because he's not willing that anybody should perish. That is his perfect will. But people do not opt for his perfect will, which is for people to be saved. That is his preferred will. What he prefers. A lot of people go for Something less. They go for his permissive will. God allowing them to choose. And so they choose way less. They, re- they choose to reject him. And so. Our brothers and sisters tonight. Those of you. Who are born again. Who have received Christ. We find an exhortation that I want to leave you with tonight. And it's found in Psalm 135 verse 3. Psalm 135, verse 3, and again, the final exhortation for tonight, and it says to praise the Lord. This is how we ought to respond. Praise the Lord. Why? For the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name for it. That is, his name is pleasant. His name is lovely. It's delightful. And so, yes, we saw that the believer, the unbeliever, need to respond in repentance to the goodness of God. But my hope is that they and those of us in this room who have received Christ will also respond 
with praise. And so what I'm saying is that ultimately God's goodness should prompt us, should lead us to praise him. We know that it leads people to repentance. Those of us who are saved, it led us to repentance. His goodness did that. But also his goodness, as we see in Psalm 135.3, it should prompt us, it should lead us to praise him. It should lead us to praise God for his goodness. Why? Because you know he is good. You realize he is good, so praise him for that goodness. If you have experienced any goodness of God in your life, you should praise him because of that. If you're saved today, if you're breathing today, if you know that you were a sinner and now you have repented, now you are saved, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you should be praising him because his goodness led you to that place. If you don't understand the circumstance that you're in, oh, maybe you're suffering from some type of illness. Maybe you're having money issues. Maybe you're having marital issues. Maybe you're having issues at work. Maybe you're having issues with the neighbor. Maybe things aren't working out with the kids. You poured the word of God into your kids for all of their lives, and they don't seem to be going in the way that they should be going. Maybe you're seeing a bunch of tragedies in the world. You're seeing sinful laws being passed in spite of your prayers night and day. But we know from the scriptures that God is still good. And so praise him because he's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the attentiveness of those who are here. Thank you for... Just your goodness, Lord. But I believe if we started thanking you for how good you've been to us, I, I believe we would probably be thanking you all night. And I'm not exaggerating. I pray for anybody who's here who has not made a decision, a real decision to repent and put their faith in Christ. I pray that you would draw them. Draw them through your love. For you sent your only begotten son to die in our place. Because you wanted to give us an opportunity to spend eternity in heaven with you. And maybe tonight there's Somebody here, Lord, who whose eyes have gotten off from the fact that you are good. Because maybe their mind has been clouded by the disasters and issues going on in the world, in their families, in their life. But I pray, Lord, that your word from tonight will... Give them that clarity. And we'll, and we'll restore that heart of praise. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks for your attentiveness. It's a pretty lengthy message. Heavy.
But God bless you on the way back home. God bless you throughout the remainder of the week. Keep each other in prayer. Amen. Thanks again for coming out. God bless you. Thank you.